Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us today. We have a treat in store for you. Uh, I am going to be sharing with you today a live talk that I gave at a spiritual warfare conference. And you know, I have to admit, I never heard of Catholics having a spiritual warfare conference until I got an invitation from this group. And then when I knew what the topic was for this year, I knew why I got an invitation. It was the family under attack. And, you know, as Catholics, we need to be aware of where the attack is ultimately coming from. All of us know that our culture, our church, our faith, our families are under attack. But in this talk, I really want to take you to the roots of where Satan's attack originates. And we're going to go back to the very beginning of the Bible and see how Satan attacked the faith, the family, and how he continues to do it today. So let's go to a spiritual warfare conference, The Family Under Attack. You know, I have to confess, I did not know that Catholics had spiritual warfare conferences. This is great. It truly is, because we are in a warfare. Last fall, I had the privilege of attending a graduation ceremony at the Army Airborne School. That's where they teach you to jump out of a parachute, jump out of a plane, with a, hopefully with a parachute, uh, both day and night. And while at that graduation ceremony, I heard a story about the U.S. entry into Afghanistan that I had never heard before, but I'll never forget. In order to launch the U.S. troops into Afghanistan, 99 airborne rangers were carefully selected and at night flew in under the cover of darkness and dropped 99 guys into Afghanistan. They were the key to the whole military effort. Their job was to secure an airfield. And if they didn't, it was a very obvious suicide mission because the objective is to secure the airfield and then other troops and arms and food and everything. All they had on was a 65-pound backpack and their rifle, and they go in, and the entire war depended upon these 99 guys. Now, just imagine for a moment if their commander had decided at the very last minute, as these 99 guys were about to drop into Afghanistan, he said, turn in your weapons. I want all your rifles in a pile right here. Now go. What would you think would be a just punishment for that commander? I mean, obviously a court-martial, obviously drummed out of the army, and I could think of a lot of other things, but it would be very wise to mention them here today. I want to talk to you about the war we are in, the spiritual war, and the weapon that God has given us to fight this war and how to fight it and where the attacks are coming. The weapon is the Word of God. I was going to end with a Bible verse. and if, Did anybody bring their Bibles, by the way? Good for you. You need to, in all seriousness, get used to this. Because if you send your grandchildren, your children, 
or your teenagers out in today's world without an internalized weapon, namely the Word of God, that's like putting 99 guys during the night, dropping them over Afghanistan without a weapon. It's a full-on spiritual war going on that we're involved in. And we do have an offensive weapon. The classic scripture passage for spiritual warfare comes from St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians and chapter 6. This is what St. Paul says starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the powers, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul goes on to mention a number of parts of spiritual armor. In verse 17, he gets to the offensive weapon. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's your offensive weapon. Now, as wonderful as this conference is, and the conferences in past years have been, and the conferences in future years have been, when people come here and tell you about sacred scripture and the church teaching, and then you leave and come back the next year and hear somebody, that is not adequate for today's world. It might have gotten you through the world before the 1960s, but it is inadequate today because you need it with you. You need it inside you. And you need to convey it to your children, your grandchildren, those you're catechizing. I'd like to start with Genesis. Good place to start. If you're looking at the Bible and chapter 3, when the serpent comes to Adam and Eve tempting them to commit original sin. And Adam and Eve fall for the temptation. And look what happens to family life immediately following. Immediately, Adam starts telling God, it's, you know, it's really my wife's fault on this. And the text doesn't say, but I'm sure Eve had something to say about Adam too. So you really have the first instance in human history in this very same chapter as original sin with the very first marital disharmony. And there's been tensions in marriage ever since. You turn the page and you move from marriage to family life. They have two sons, Cain and Abel, and within a chapter there's fratricide. Cain killed his brother. This is family life. One chapter after original sin. You go a little further in chapter 4. You have the first instance of polygamy. Distorting the marital union. Lamech decided he wanted two wives. Ada and Zillah. And ever since there's been all kinds of... I won't even mention, but... Men doing crazy things with multiple women. Not a good idea. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 19, God's great and wonderful 
and holy gift of sexuality in marriage is entirely turned upside down in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it says by Genesis 19, this is only 16 chapters later, every single man in the town wanted to basically rape what they thought were two men. They were actually angels in disguise appearing as men. And you have the whole thing turning upside down. God rescues Lot and his family, and what do you find after that? Incest with Lot's daughter and Lot. So, I mean, you don't even get halfway through Genesis, and you have a nuclear explosion against every dimension of family life. Now, I'd like to uh, share with you a word that um, is not well known, but once you get the concept, it's going to be very easy to grasp. And the word is this, protology. Many people are familiar, I'm sure many of you are, in, are familiar with the word eschatology. It means the study in theology of last things, like biblical prophecy, the end of human history, new heavens and new earth, things like that. That simply eschatos in Greek is the word for last, so eschatology is a study of last things. So you already know then what protology means. That's the study of first things. And a key for understanding the whole Bible and for understanding biblical prophecy and for understanding spiritual combat is to keep these two things in mind while you're reading Genesis. Here's just a couple. For instance, Genesis opens with a garden paradise. Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, close with paradise restored. So you have both protology and eschatology, paradise on both ends. Uh, you have a river going through Eden in Genesis. In the end of Revelation, you have the river of life. Going through the city of God. Protology and eschatology. You go just a few chapters into Genesis and you find a guy named Nimrod, who's a, the Bible's first precursor of the Antichrist. And then you have the Tower of Babel, which is the protology view of the Antichrist kingdom in the last days. And probably the very best example of protology and eschatology comes right off the lips of Jesus. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. And the world became corrupt. And you might say, you know, there's only 12 faithful people that follow the Catholic faith in my whole neighborhood. Well, guess what? Noah and his family were alone in the whole world. Imagine that. Okay? And that ark was protology for the Catholic Church. The ark of salvation. Peter's bark. Now, as we look at Genesis, we need to realize that there's a very distinct plan of attack. Protology that will be followed in the last days.
Do you understand this? The Bible is connected. We're supposed to be getting a lot of clues as to what the attack is, how it comes, and how to defend against it by looking at these early chapters of Genesis. Here's what St. John Paul II said about Genesis 3. The family has received a deadly bite from the ancient serpent. He injected a satanic venom, the venom of original sin, into the souls of the first man and woman. And from that time onward, man's history on earth has been burdened by sin. It's not a secret that the family, I already gave you what happened in Genesis and Prochology, was the immediate consequence of falling into original sin, marriage and family. So we should expect, as we move towards the end of times, and Catholics don't set dates and all that type of thing, but every day is one day closer, we can expect these things which happened at the beginning will happen again at the end. And I view uh, St. John Paul's statement here about the serpent injecting venom into Adam and Eve uh, I'm thinking of those like two fangs coming out of the serpent's mouth. I ask you not to report me on this, but I really don't care for snakes. Uh, if I see a snake, I'll kill it, and then I'll identify it, whether or not it was poisonous. But I mean, I really don't care for snakes, okay? So if you can picture in your mind the serpent, and he's going to have two fangs, deadly fangs, venom that he wants to put in you. And here's how these two fangs worked in Genesis. And hear me very closely. Protology, eschatology, what he did then, he does now. Do you get this? Okay. The first thing he did was place doubt in God's word. What is our offensive weapon in spiritual warfare? The word of God. So what is the first thing he does? Did God say? I mean, he didn't deny, he just doubted. And that's how it all starts. That's how everything that has gone crazy in the world, how everything has been turned upside down, how human relationships have been violated, it all started with simply a doubt. Did God say? Now, I'm going to share with you something you're probably not hearing on Catholic radio. The reason is, I have asked some very prominent people, well-known scripture scholars, to come on board with me and to discuss what I'm about to share with you. They share my beliefs, but they conveniently switch the subject when I asked them to come on and talk about this. Another friend I had was in the midst of earning his PhD at a Catholic institution. He said, Steve, I'd love to come on with you, but if anybody found out about it, I wouldn't get my PhD. So a lot of people aren't hearing about this. And, you know, I kind of scratch my head, you know, <laughs> why in the world didn't the Lord kind of get my attention when I was a little younger and get me into Catholic Church? Why go through all the circuit of evangelical Protestantism. Well, one of the reasons is 
Protestantism had the first fang, the venom of doubt injected to them just a little less than a hundred years ago. It came from Germany, and I grew up in a Presbyterian church. It hit Princeton Seminary in the 1920s. And now if you would look at the denomination and tradition I grew up in, not a problem with abortion or homosexuality. How did that happen? How did we get here? It began with something that came here from Germany. And this venom is generally commonly accepted in Catholic circles where scripture study is engaged in. Because Catholics, uh, probably mid-20th century, got on board with some very serious scholarly scripture study and unfortunately imported some of this. It's called the Documentary Hypothesis, or J-E-D-P. And that's a bunch of letters, and there's actually uh, dozens of J-E-D-P theories. But the basic theory is this. Moses didn't write Genesis. Moses didn't write the Pentateuch. Even though the rest of the Old Testament was under the impression he did. Even though Jesus Christ thought he did. He's, you know, he referred back to Moses who was quoting Genesis. And what it, this theory does, it says that Moses didn't actually write what we're reading. And so its claim to divine inspiration is then put in doubt. And it's very interesting, in Germany, where this started, there is a scholar by the name of Julius Wellhausen. And I wish that everywhere, and by the way, if you want to hear a young priest particularly, has been taught to say, when referring to the author of Genesis or the first five books of the Bible, they'll say, they're taught to say today, the sacred author instead of Moses. Because they're referring to one of these JEDP authors who came centuries later. They claim that writing wasn't even invented when Moses was supposed to have written Genesis. Now, there's a major problem with that. Is that whoever taught young priests and Protestant pastors this, if they went to graduate school after 1975, they're not with it. Because one of the... Which I say, the reasons for this theory was that writing wasn't even invented in Moses' day. And we really didn't have too much to say about that until 1975. There is a town in the Middle East called Elba, E-L-B-A, which was discovered. And they not only found writing in Elba that was predating Moses by a thousand years, they found a whole library. Because he used to write on clay tablets. And somebody burned the library, which kind of like fossilized the writing. And so, here you go, 3,500 years later. We have a whole library of human writing a thousand years before Moses. So, Dr. Wellhausen admitted that when he first taught his theory, which again is very commonly accepted in both Catholic and Protestant circles... Every single one of his Lutheran seminarians lost their Christian faith. Here's what he said. He wrote this letter 
I became a theologian because the scientific treatment of the Bible interested me. He was applying the theory of evolution to scripture study. Only gradually did I come to understand that a professor of theology also has the practical task of preparing the students for service in the Protestant church. And I am not adequate to this practical task. But instead, despite all caution on my own part, I make my hearers, his seminary students, unfit for their service. Since then, my theological professorship has been weighing heavily on my conscience. And actually, I tip my hat to Dr. Wellhausen. He confessed that basically his theory was spiritual death to seminary students, which this is the venom. This is the same venom that was in the Garden of Eden, placing doubt on God's word. And then you just move to our day. I don't know if you know what goes on in scripture studies today, but you need to be aware of this. I took my son, and by the way, visit Catholic colleges. Don't visit on college day. Go some other day. Just pick something off the calendar and pray and go there. So we go into a scripture study class, one of the top 20 colleges on the Newman list of, you know, good Catholic colleges and universities. And what did we hear? Moses didn't write Genesis. It's going on, folks, in the majority of the top 20 Catholic colleges and universities. So I have three very simple questions you can ask your high school Catholic high school, scripture teacher, or if you're interviewing at a Catholic college. Just three questions. Who wrote the Pentateuch? Who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Well, uh, if you hear, well, uh, okay. That's, you, you lose. Second, who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Now, this is going to be a revelation to you. Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, Luke wrote Luke, and John wrote John. But do you know, I was sitting in an evangelical seminary, and the head of the New Testament department was having us use a commentary by the leading Catholic New Testament scholar in the English-speaking world, at least. And we were being taught that what we had before us in the Greek New Testament of John wasn't what John wrote. But that some community of his beloved disciples wrote that after the fact. So our exercises tried to determine what John wrote. Well, a few of us got together, including probably a name you know of, Scott Hahn, and a few other seminarians, and he got the boot. But this is going on everywhere. So who wrote the Pentateuch? Okay. All right. Who wrote Matthew? Mark? Luke? John? Okay, that's two. Third question. Who wrote the 12 Pauline epistles? Who wrote the 12 epistles that in both Greek and English translations, the first word in those epistles is Paul? Guess who wrote those? Well, do you know that New Testament scholars are sitting around saying, well, I think he wrote six. Nah, seven. Nah, five. That's what New Testament studies is doing. And they don't realize what they're doing is rather than receiving what the church has passed on through the centuries, if you deny authorship, you're placing doubt in the veracity of God's word. You've been listening to Faith and Family. I'm your host, Steve Wood, and I've been sharing with you a live talk that I gave at a spiritual warfare conference in California, The Family Under Attack. And the bottom line is that Satan goes 
for God's truth. If he can undermine God's truth by subtly placing doubts in people's minds, the path towards sin is well underway. And you know what? Satan's strategies have worked so well in the past, he really hasn't changed them today. And when we have, quote, scholars, unquote, telling us that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, or Matthew didn't write Matthew, or John didn't write John, well, that puts doubt, because Jesus referred to Moses back in the early chapters of the Bible. And if we can't trust the very names of the Gospels, Gospel of John, Gospel of according to Luke, then what are we to believe? That's doubt. Is this really authentic? Pope Leo XIII said this, quote, The young, if they lose their reverence for the Holy Scriptures on one or more points, they are easily led to give up believing in it altogether, unquote. And that was in his encyclical on the study of Holy Scripture, Pope Leo XIII. And this is exactly what I am warning about. We're wondering why our young people are wandering away and leaving the faith. Well, if they lose reverence for the Holy Scriptures on one or more points, and this is Satan's strategy and his attack against the family and against our children, then they are easily led to give up on it altogether. You've been listening to Faith and Family. This is episode 117, but I'm going to ask you, stick with us, because next week I'm going to be sharing with you part two of my talk I gave at the Spiritual Warfare Conference, The Family Under Attack. And I've been emphasizing the importance of starting at the beginning with the idea that Moses is the author to the first five books of the Bible. And no one has ever said anything more important than Jesus Christ, who said in John chapter 5, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You see, you really want to undermine the faith? You really want to undermine the gospel, which has such a prominent place in Catholic liturgy and belief, Jesus says it's very simple. A road belief in Moses, and you don't have belief in Jesus' own words. This is the first fang of Satan's attack against the faith, against the family, and particularly against your children. I'm going to recommend a resource for you. I've prepared a 13-page document with very succinct answers to the common objections to Moses being the author of the Pentateuch. It's entitled, Did Moses Really Write the Pentateuch? Simply go to dads.org, go to our store, look for CD number 393. This is something that every Catholic young person should have before they set their foot in a high school or college religious education program. Till next time, this is Steve Wood with Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at familylifecenter.net. To order a CD copy of today's broadcast, order online at www.familylifecenter.net.